Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms today, looking today at Psalm 50 and a call to true worship. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are thankful that your word is enough for us. And not only is it enough for us, but Lord, you teach us. You teach us about how to live in light of who you are as revealed in your word. And so, Lord, we we come to a psalm in your word today in the book of Psalms and Psalm 50 that is not only challenging, but it's also convicting. So, Lord, we we pray that today that, that the word of the Lord would land on the good, fertile soil that you would take that you would take this psalm lord and you would you would cause it to to land on the fertile soil not on rocky soil but on good soil that it might bear much fruit for your glory and for your name in a time in which there is so much ungodly worship that dishonors you that dishonors the Lord of glory. So Lord, teach us and help us to walk in your way in the way in which you have appointed as we are always before your face, as we always live in your presence, as there is not one molecule, there is not one iota that you do not see and over which you do not say mine. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us today, that you would teach us and instruct us now from your word, and that you would take it and drill it down deep into the heart, into our hearts, and that you would plant it there, and that the truths would be plastered on our hearts and our minds. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true, that your word is sufficient, that your word is binding. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Hear what the Word of God has to say to us today. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion, the perfection of beauty God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring power, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is a judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and I know all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statues or take my covenant 
on your lips, for you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like your yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. What a, what a text. What a text before us. Right? As we come and we read the word of God, the word of God speaks to us because it is God speaking to us. There's no other way to know this God. He speaks to us only from his word and his word is sufficient. His word is binding. One of the chief errors in theology today is the idea that when God acts differently, it's because God himself has changed. In fact, there was a whole study on this every other year. And one of the things that people said is that professing Christians said that God changes his mind. And yet Psalm 50 is going to teach us that about this error because of the way it relates the two principal mountains of the Old Testament, Sinai and Zion. And now the Bible usually contrast these two mountains, understanding Sinai to represent the law and Zion, the gospel. Paul wrote this way in his allegory of Galatians 4, associating Mount Zion with Abraham's slave girl, Hagar, and Zion, Abraham's true wife, Sarah. The children of Hagar and Sinai are slaves under the law, Paul said, but the children of Sarah and Zion enjoy gospel freedom in Galatians 4.26. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 18 through 24, made a similar contrast between the burdens of the law and the privileges that believers now have in Christ. With our having seen the contrast between Sinai and Zion, the danger now is to think that God had somehow changed during the time between Moses and David. Some Christians have wrongly asserted that the Old Testament salvation was by law, while the coming of Jesus changed uh, salvation to result from only faith alone. The, the people of the Old Testament Jerusalem fell prey to a different way of thinking that God had changed, holding that since God had settled them on Mount Zion with the temple in their midst, the threats of God's law for Mount Sinai no longer applied to them. Psalm 50 confronts them with their error since the God of Zion is not a different God from the raging deity of Sinai. Zion was so privileged and blessed that the psalmist describes it as the perfection of beauty in Psalm 50 verse 2. And yet the God of Zion was just as holy as the God of Mount Sinai. Psalm 50 verses 2 through 3 says, Out of Zion God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring flower. Around him a mighty tempest. And so if the Old Testament Jews were tempted by the glories of Zion to forget God's unchanging demands, Christians who enjoy the blessings of the gospel through union with Christ are no less prone to such folly today. In fact, Psalm 50 counters such thinking with what J.J. Stewart Perone calls the magnificent exposition of the true nature of that service and worship which God requires of man. It rebukes the folly which thinks that religion is a matter of sacrifices and gifts, and it declares that obedience and thanksgiving are the true fulfillment of the law of God, he says. Now this psalm, it begins with the greatness of God. Verse 1 of Psalm 50 says, He is the mighty one. He thunders on high, God the creator, and Yahweh. The, we're talking about the covenant God of Israel. His trumpet blasts out to the entire world. Verse 3 says, Our God comes. He does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. 
And the opening verses of this psalm, they present a notable description of the relationship of God to the world and the church. Psalm 50 verse 1 says that the Lord speaks out of Zion, that is from the midst of his church and its city, and yet he speaks and he summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting, verse 1 says. God will reveal himself to the entire earth, and he will do so by means of his judgment of the church. For while the entire earth is summoned, it is gathered to witness the Lord's dealing with his covenant people. Psalm 50, verses 4 through 5 says, He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. This summons reminds us of the paramount importance of the church in every generation. There is no more vital civic institution than the Christian church since the well-being of the entire society depends on God's blessing in and through the church. Put another way, The church is God's plan A. It is his primary instrument that he uses to carry forth the gospel, to make disciples to the ends of the earth for his glory. And so this really, really matters. Psalm 50 not only tells us that God relates to the world through his church, it also shows us how God relates to the church as its Lord. Psalm 50 verse 5 refers to God's people as my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. God has bound his people in a covenant that is sealed in the blood of an atoning sacrifice. Leviticus 26 12 says, I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people with the obligation of faith on the part of the church. Psalm 50 shows us to be a living relationship. God is not an absentee landlord, but a sovereign king who rules his people. He calls for his church to be gathered so that he may inquire as to her obedience. This is the idea of God's coming to judge his people in Psalm 50 verse 4. He comes now to see whether they have kept his law, whether they have been faithful to his covenant. In fact, God's purpose in summoning his people is seen in the call to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people in Psalm 50 verse 4. Heaven and earth have have been the witnesses arraigned by God when he first brought his people into covenant. Deuteronomy chapters 26 through 30, they record the great covenant-making ceremony that the Lord had ordained to take place once Israel was established in the promised land. It was a covenant that ordained life for those who walked in his commandment and death for those who turned away, as described in Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 18. In fact, the Lord declared in Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. And throughout Israel's history, when the prophets summoned heaven and earth to witness, they were recalling Israel to her covenant with the Lord. And so Psalm 50 verse 6 concludes God's summonings, proclaiming the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is the judge. In fact, we're reminded in the New Testament in 1 Peter 4 17 that it, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. God does not forget his requirements upon his people any more than he forgets his promises for their salvation. And when he comes in judgment of warning, as Psalm 50 records, God is showing grace to his people, the grace of reproof and the call to repentance, so that God's name may be honored throughout the earth because of his grace towards the church. We're talking about the one who is the head over the church. We're talking about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're talking about the one in our Savior, our King, and our Lord, Jesus Christ, who established the church, who saves people by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And we have to remember, as we're about to to get into this a little bit even more, as we talk about what we are about to talk about. We have to remember what I just talked about, about blessing and curses. Because if you go read the prophets, what you're going to see is you're going to see the 
that you're going to see Israel just walking through the motions, just doing whatever they want to do. And God, through the prophets, is continually reminding them of the blessing of being the people of God and also the covenant curses for their disobedience. People today, they they think that this is not right. They think that God is not just because he can't do what he said he would. And yet, do we believe in integrity? We have to ask the question, do we believe in integrity anymore? Do we believe that when somebody opens their mouth and when they say the words they do, do we take them seriously? Do we take them at their word? When, when an employee says to their boss, I'm going to do this thing right now. I'm going to clean up the, you know, the, the shop or whatever it is or, or whatever. I'm going to do this and that. Don't we take them at that, that employee at their word? When a child tells their mother or father, I'm going to do the dishes or I'm going to clean the bathroom. I'm going to, when I'm going to vacuum the floor and on and on we go, we, we take that child at their word. When a husband says, I'm going to love, you know, my wife, we take that, we take that man at his word and we follow up with him to see how he's doing. How is he doing leading his home and loving his spouse and on and on? And don't you think, now, now we, now we zoom out here. We're talking in a human perspective, but we zoom out. Don't you think that it's right for God the one who made us, the one who fashioned us, as Psalm 139 tells us in our mother's womb, the one who made us in his image and likeness, don't you think it's right for God, the covenant Lord, to hold us responsible and accountable for the way in which we live our lives? Don't you think that it would be inconsistent for a holy and just and perfect God to not do that. And now think about this. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 very clearly tell us that he disciplines those whom he loves. He doesn't do it to smite you. He doesn't do it to be hard on you. The reason that God disciplines his people in both the Old and the New Testament was because he loves them. He cares about them. He doesn't want them to walk in their own way, in their own power, in their own sufficiency, as Israel often did. And we know this just reading the Bible. Go read Go read the first five books of the Bible and tell me, did Israel not walk in their own way? Did they not walk? Did they not walk in their own power and, and, and in the way in which they wanted to go all the time? They didn't consider the Lord. They just went ahead and did it. That's the seriousness now and the situation of what we're about to talk about. And for some of you, what I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say that this way. So for some of you, this is going to be this next part of this study is gonna be a shot in the arm. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. And yet this is God's word. He has some, God has something to say about the manner in which we live. And the manner in which we live, it, it needs to align with the word. Jesus said this, that if you love me, obey my commandments. And we know that the commandments are not burdensome. It's the standard that God has, and that's the standard that we're going to get into now. Now, Psalm 50 is attributed to Asaph, who was appointed by David to serve as the chief of the Levites, who maintained worship before the Lord, according to 1 Chronicles 16, 4 through 5. And so if the original Asaph was the author, then Psalm 50 was penned during David's reign at the very beginning of Israel's worship on Mount Zion. And as we might expect, however, a succession of Levites were also named Asaph. So Psalm 50 could have been written by a later bearer of 
that name, whichever Asaph was the author. Psalm 50 is a rebuke from God through one called to lead Israel in worship. Now the psalmist delivers two chief complaints from God. God has something to say about the way we live our lives. The first complaint is, is that which is directed against the empty formalism in worship. This complaint is lodged in Psalm 58 through 15. And here the Lord states that he is not angry because the Levites had grown slack in offering sacrifices. For this was not the case. Verse 8 says, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Rather, their problem was their attitude in making their sacrifices. They had come to believe that God was pleased by the sure mechanics of formal worship going through the motions, which in their case required the slaying of animals and blood sacrifice. Charles Spurgeon said they thought that the daily sacrifices and the abounding burnt offerings to be everything. He counted them nothing if the inner sacrifice of heart devotion had been neglected, Spurgeon says. God's complaint against dead formalism is found throughout the Old Testament. The Lord said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 11 verse uh, yeah Isaiah 1:11. He says, "What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices?" says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And now one might object, noting that it was God who instituted these very sacrifices. And yet the sacrifices were never intended to represent uh, what God's people offered to him in worship. Instead, they depicted what God had given to his people for, for the forgiveness of their sins, namely the atoning blood that Jesus would offer on the cross. Offering sacrifices pointing to what God had given them, but the Israelites offered nothing of themselves back to God. Jesus gave the same emphasis in his teaching on worship, saying this in Mark 12, 33, to love the Lord with all of your heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so when Christians ask what to give the God who already has everything, his answer is that what he desires us to give ourselves to is to give him all of it from the heart. And when this spiritual offering is withheld, the Lord is uninterested in receiving the mere outward sacrifices, the external trappings in our worship. Psalm 50 verse 9 says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. And there seems to have developed among the Israelites an heir that justified their rituals. God rebuked them for acting as though he actually needed to be fed the meats of their sacrifices. Psalm 50, 10 through 13 says this, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? The idea that God needed their sacrifice denied. The essential spirituality of God and blasphemy made the, the Lord a man-dependent idol. Now, empty formalism and worship impairs our souls because it promotes a false worship of God. People who consider themselves to be right with God simply because they receive a sacrament, whether baptism or the Lord's Supper, or because they're physically present for worship, are deluded. The classic example of a fully developed formalism was given by the Pharisees on the morning of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. John's Gospel tells us the hideous scene of Jesus' accusers priding themselves on ritual observance at the very moment they were handing over the Messiah to be put to death. John states that Jesus' accusers refused to set foot in Pilate's headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement during the Passover, not realizing that their hands were stained with the greatest crime the world had ever seen. And so the corrective to empty formalism is worship that is filled with thanksgiving, sincere obedience, and trusting prayer. Psalm 50, 14 through 
15 says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. In fact, the psalmist indicates that the gratitude for God's saving grace is at the heart of all true and saving religion. From thanksgiving comes a total offering of the self uh, to God in praise and worship. The thankful worshiper is eager to fulfill all their obligations to the Lord, including faith, denial, holiness, patient endurance, and trials. Thanksgiving is joined to prayer because the grateful believer looks to the Lord in reliance and hope for salvation. This is such true faith that seeks the Lord in the day of trouble will gain salvation. Verse 15 says, and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. In fact, as a matter of practice, Psalm 50 suggests that we do well always and everywhere to thank God for his blessings before we turn to our lists of prayer or even our own needs. Even Thanksgiving can become a ritual formalism. However, so that the heart of true worship is a sincere, loving gratitude to God for all of his blessings, especially for the great gift that he has given to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me be clear about something. The empty formalism described in our text today in Psalm 50 is as grave a problem today as it was in the Old Testament. How mistaken we are to think that we are doing something special for God by showing up to church, even if we just show up for the sermon. As if God needed us to be there. Merely attending worship does not represent an offering to the Lord. The ordinances of divine worship are not given by us to God, but by God for us to for our blessing. We truly worship God only when we offer him genuine thanksgiving and love in response to the grace of God. In fact, the problem is much more severe than you might think, especially in a time such as ours when there is so much controversy over forms of worship. And it's good to be clear. We're going to talk about this. It is good to have biblical form of worship with theologically sound liturgy and God-honoring music, and yet the proper forms are never adequate before God. The forms matter, and we need to be biblical, and we need to be theologically sound in our music. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But it would be better to have less sound forms with truly thankful hearts than to offer formally sound worship with dead or uninterested or callous hearts to the Lord that just go through the motions. And whether we are worshiping privately as a family or together as a church, we should do our best to be biblical in how we view worship, remembering that God desires grateful, loving, sincere, and heartfelt praise. And now some of you just heard what I said, perhaps. You just heard that I kind of minimized the place of theology and worship. And that could be not further from the truth. First off, anybody who knows me knows that I love theology. I love it. I love all of it. I, I, I geek out reading systematic theology in large tomes that are over a thousand pages. I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I have since... I was a teenager, and now I'm in my early 40s. So that says quite a bit, doesn't it? But more seriously, today we have, sadly, not theologically rich, biblically accurate songs. We have songs that are all about me, all about how I feel. And so at the center is my emotions, my my satisfaction. What? That is the opposite of God-honoring worship. And so when I, when I talk about what I did about just walking through the motions, I'm not minimizing theology. I'm actually lifting it up to the right place. When Jonathan Edwards and his religious affections preached, he wanted to raise people's affections to the highest level with the truth of Scripture. Excuse me. And he wanted to do that because what he wanted was people to be saturated in the word and to have their emotions, their affections stirred for God's glory and for their good so that they would be thankful 
to the Lord and for his grace. And when our worship songs are all about me and mine and seeking my own pleasure and or or false worship and and false theo- bad theology we we have to go back to the word and ask some questions do we believe the word of god do we believe it is it enough is it binding on our lives You see, God takes worship seriously because how we worship him is a reflection of what we think about God himself. You know, we cannot help, put another way, I'll put this another way. We cannot help but worship God. And that happens whether they're through song, it happens through our words, it happens through the way we work, the kind of work that we do, whether it's of excellent for excellence and for God's glory alone, or it's for ourselves. But no matter whether it's we're singing, we're working, we're talking, we're fellowshipping, we're enjoying entertainment or all, Paul says in Colossians 3 that all is to be done for God's glory. And it's all to be done because the Bible is very clear that everything in our lives is always before the face of God. That means that you cannot fake out God. You cannot play pretend that, you know what, God isn't with you when you take your phone and you look at those illicit images or videos or Instagram or whatever you do or whatever you think you're doing at your workplace when you cheat on your taxes or something else and on and on. God sees it. It is a matter of worship. You cannot fake God out. And sadly, some people today, some Christians even think, you know what? The only thing that matters is I go to church on Sunday. I check off that box. I hear the sermon. I take the Lord's Supper And I don't give it any other thought during the rest of the week. It doesn't matter. Once I leave that church parking lot, that's all that matters. And anybody who says anything else, you don't forget them. But let me ask you a question. What separates that idea from what the world says? Because our world is worshiping in in so many ways. Through the use of entertainment. Think about, think about the person who can spend, you know, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars going to a Major League Baseball game or buying Major League Baseball tickets or NFL tickets or hockey tickets or, or racing tickets and uh, movies. Even, even the good things that we might enjoy, like taking our spouse out on a date. What happens if all those things, all those trappings, even the best things of our lives were misdirecting them? We're placing them above God in our lives. And what we need to understand is that that's that's theological. That's an idol. And don't you think that God takes idolatries seriously in the Bible? And the answer is he does. Our God, scripture tells us, is a jealous God. He is a holy God. And he will have our worship. That is why he disciplines us in love. He does it to get our attention. This is why worship, it, it not only we talk about the problems with Hellsong and Elevation and Bethel and on and on, but It's not just the songs that we sing on Sunday that's the problem. It's our lives are too often disconnected from the God we profess to love. We too easily give God lip service and don't understand that all of our lives are always before the Lord. There is not one single area over which God does not say, mine 
And now joined to the problem of formalism in worship is even the more dreadful condition of hypocrisy. If formalism involves going through the motions without even offering ourselves to the Lord, hypocrisy is giving over of oneself to evil under the cloak of religion. Hypocrisy is more in a more advanced state of or depravity than formalism. And as such, it receives not merely God's warning, but his most severe condemnation. In fact, verse 16 of Psalm 50 tells us that God's ire is stoked by hypocrites in the church. When he says, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? And whereas God rejects the worship of his formalistic people, he rejects the people themselves who claim to bear his name while actually practice evil and do abominable things and refuse to submit themselves to the standard as given in Scripture. There is no one who cannot be accused of failing to practice what they preach, of sinning against the very God whom he has claimed to praise while at church. But what the psalmist condemns here is hypocrisy as something more serious than the mere failure to live up to our high calling as Christians. The Lord condemns those who are flagrantly and even openly making a mockery of God's moral commands. Psalm, so Psalm 50 verses 18 through 20 was going to chart the mocking of God's law in terms of the 7th, 8th, and 9th commandment. In fact, the hypocrites not only fail to honor the property of others, but also go so far as to approve of robbery. Verse 18, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him. They not only fail to uphold sexual purity, but they keep company with adulterers. In verse 18, and instead of bearing a true witness, God asserts, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. In verses 19 through 20. And in every case, the false worshiper is found reveling in the things that God despises. This person is not a true believer struggling with sinful desires and habits, but a false professor of religion, somebody who isn't a Christian because they delight in sin and in the company of the wicked. In fact, the theological term for the situation that Psalm 50 is describing is called antinomianism. It means against the law. James Boyce describes it as the religion of those who think that they can belong to God and sin however they want to. And not only is there a problem in the church with people living as antinomiums against the law of God, but in fact there's even a strain of evangelical theology defends lawless Christian living. It is possible people insist today to have Jesus as Savior without surrendering to Him as Lord, and to be saved by Christ without following Him in obedient discipleship. Such people deride any emphasis on obeying the Bible as legalism, thinking that one may be justified through faith in Christ alone without being born again to a new and a godly lifestyle. James Boyce responds to the false teaching in terms of Psalm 50 when he says, It is possible for Christians to sin. They do sin, he says, but it, it is not possible for them to be hypocrites. If they are not intending to do the right thing and wanting to do the right thing as defined by the moral law of God, they are not Christians any more than the wicked people of this psalm are truly God's people. Whew, that's a heavy word. The Lord condemns in the strongest term those who speak his praise while reveling in sin. Psalm 50 verse 22 says, Mark this then you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Hypocrites are fools for thinking God is blind to their actions. His patience in withholding judgment leads them not to be thankful for the repentance given, but to even be more boastful in their sin. Psalm 50, 21 says, These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. And since virtually nobody considers themselves a hypocrite, we need to learn the signs of hypocrisy. The best test begins at the beginning of God's rebuke in verse 17 of Psalm 50, which says, For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. God proves the hypocrite's content by showing the reaction against his word, by refusing to submit to the standard given in the word of God. They show their arrogance towards God. 
Each of us should therefore observe how we respond to the Bible's commands and how we react when Scripture shows us that we are in error or in sin. The true believer submits to the Word of God, however haltingly or even inconsistently, whereas the hypocrite finds excuses and even arguments to evade the Bible's teaching. John Calvin piercingly says this, the psalmist points to this as the mainspring of their ungodliness, that they cast the word of God behind their back while he insinuates that the principle from which all true worship flows is the obedience of faith. And so the hypocrisy of living however you want to or antinomianism or lawless living It created a a major controversy during Calvin's ministry in Geneva. One of the factions in St. Peter's Church where Calvin served as pastor was known as the Libertines. These worldly people boasted in their sinful license, even celebrating adultery and sexual promiscuity in the name of Christian freedom. Which it's not. That's living however you want to. It's slavery. And at the same time, the Libertines demanded the right to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. 1553, a wealthy Libertine named Butler was barred from the table by Calvin's church elders. And yet he succeeded in having the church's authority overturned by the city council. Believing that the glory of Christ was at stake, Calvin simply refused to comply. On the appointed morning, after preaching the word of God, Calvin descended to stand before the table with the communion elements. After consecrating the elements in prayer, he spied the libertines coming forward to partake. Calvin flung his arms around the vessels, crying aloud, These hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. After this, wrote Calvin's biographer, Theodore Beza, the sacred ordinance was celebrated with profound silence and under solemn awe in all present as if the deity himself had been visible among them. Calvin understood the message of Psalm 50, verse 16, which says to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? And for the ferocity of its threat, Psalm 50 is in fact a summons from God to draw near in worship. We have a tendency, if we're honest, to formalism that must be corrected, and we must never descend to a God-mocking hypocrisy. And yet God does not desire to execute judgment. Rather, he seeks the worship of those who gratefully love him and desire to honor him for the saving grace. It is this invitation that the psalmist gives in Psalm 50, 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of my God. How inspiring it is to see God glorified in our grateful, thankful hearts. And how exciting it is to know that sincere faith will receive nothing less than the salvation of God defined and described in the word. Questions about worship are common and Psalm 50 offers many answers jesus dealt with questions about worship and his classic statement to the samaritan woman agrees with and even amplifies the message of psalm 50. when the woman by the well asked jesus about worship he responded that the lord is looking for worshipers in john 4 23 which says this the father is seeking such people to worship him and further jesus explained that that the worship god desires is worship that is in spirit and in truth Now, Jesus' teaching provides a grid for worship that agrees with Psalm 50. The the psalmist in Psalm 50 reproved empty formalism, and Jesus calls for worship of his Father to be in spirit. This means that our worship must not be external, but must be spiritual and inward. True worship is a matter of the heart and not merely of just walking through the motions. James Boyce says this, true worship occurs Only when that part of man, his spirit, which is akin to the divine nature for God's spirit, actually meets with God and finds itself praising him for his love, his wisdom, his beauty, his truth, his holiness, his compassion, his mercy, grace, power, and all of his other attributes. Jesus said that worship must be in truth. And the psalmist rejected worship on the basis of false ideas about God. 
Some Israelites thought that God actually needed to be fed sacrifice, which we see in Psalm 50, 10 through 13, whereas the hypocrites thought that God was morally indifferent like themselves in Psalm 50, 21. And yet worship and truth requires a right conception of who we worship. Worship must obey the Bible's teaching regarding how we worship. Our worship, put another way, must consist of biblically mandated activities such as Bible reading and preaching and prayer. And yet even more important than this is worship requires us to worship in truth, and that requires thinking rightly after God as defined in his word. Kent Hughes says this, Worship is not a mindless activity. It includes mental interaction with the truth of God. This does not make worship merely an intellectual experience with no effect on the emotions, the will, and the affections, far from it. But the trajectory of biblical worship is a light shining through the mind to warm the heart and to raise the affections, as Edward said, to the highest level with the truth of God's word. And so Paul thus urged us to offer to God spiritual worship, explaining, be transformed by the renewal of your mind in Romans 12, 1-2. Jesus taught that the good news that the Father is seeking worshipers, and then he invited us to come in spirit and in truth in John 4, 23. But Jesus has one more vital thing to say to us about worship. The Samaritan woman asked where she should worship, whether on the mountain of her father's or down in Jerusalem at Mount Zion. And she then confessed, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things in John 4, 25. And then Jesus responded with words that changed her life and that thunder at the heart of all true worship in John 4, 26, saying, I who speak to you am he. This bold declaration completes the Bible's teaching in Psalm 50. Worship must be in spirit, it must be in truth, and it must be in Christ. Psalm 50, 23 says, To the one who orders his way, I will show the salvation of my God. To his faithful people, God showed his salvation by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The same God who gave the law on Mount Sinai, a God of holy righteousness, and who then gathered his people for worship on Mount Zion, a God of covenant faithfulness, has now revealed himself in, in the fullness of a saving grace on the Mount of Calvary. And on that mount, God gave his son that we might see his salvation and worship him in spirit and in truth. Psalm 50 verse 2 says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. The New Testament tells us that through the gospel, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. See, God today is still seeking worshipers through Jesus Christ who come to him in spirit and truth. And when we do, he will be our chief delight. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 8, 10, and 12 says this, I will put my law, laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Maybe today you realize that you have been walking through the motions. You've just been going to church singing the songs, listening to the sermon, and you wonder, why is there no change? Why, why am I getting no help? Why is my heart not stirred by the things of God? Could it be that the motivation for you going to church is to be seen? Maybe that's to be seen by a member of the opposite sex or to be seen as, as somebody cool or hip by a certain somebody in the, in the congregation that you want to impress. But what God calls us to is not walking through the motions. He is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And he also in this text calls out those who think that they can live however they want. To be a hypocrite is to be a play actor. It's to play, to play a part. To walk not only through the motions, but to do so with great intention and with purposefulness. That's a hypocrite. 
And it's to live contrary to the law of God as revealed in the word of God. Is Put it another way, it's to live <coughs> contrary to the standard of God in his word. Scripture has something to say about this, as it always does. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 20 through 20, uh, 23. 20, Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is, a, that is a tragedy. We're talking about people who thought that they were saved. People who did all the right things. They went to church. They signed the statements. They professed to believe. And they went through the church membership interview. And they could tell you the gospel. They could tell you maybe even more than the basics of theology. And yet, when they stand before the Lord of glory... Sadly, they're going to be told, depart from me, I never knew you. The reason I bring that up is because, like Psalm 50 is showing us, God takes seriously our worship. If we will not adhere to the standard of God in the word, we need to do business with God. If you think for one second that it is okay to live however you want to in whatever kind of sexual configuration that you want. If it dishonors God, you have another thing coming. Because God's standard is the only standard that matters. Period. End of sentence. End of discussion. God made man for himself. And the heart will not be satisfied as Blaise Pascal once said, apart from God, because Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has set eternity on our hearts. And the reason that Jesus rebukes the people here in Matthew 7.21-23, through 23, and why he says that they never knew him, is because they're not known by the Father through the Son and, by, and dwelt by the Spirit, by the triune God. And so Jesus says, you depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. The stakes and the matter of our worship could not be higher than, than this. It, it matters how we worship. It matters. You might wonder, this is a tough text. At the end of John 6, Jesus has something very hard to say. And he says it in, in John 6, 66. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They left the Lord of glory. And so Jesus says this in John 6, 67. Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, is your crap, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Notice what Peter says. Lord, to whom shall you go? You have the words of eternal life. The only one, the one who calls us, the one who saves us, if you're united to Christ by faith in his name, he's the one who empowers us through the Holy Spirit to repent of empty formalism, to repent of hypocrisy, to bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. This is why conversion is not the end of our salvation, it is just the doorway. And we continue to repent all the way to glory. 
all the way to glory. We have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for our need, as Spurgeon said. Or as Luther said and Calvin said, that the Christian life is one of repentance. And that's true. Because the only one that has the words of life is our Lord. He is the only one. And he calls us to worship him. Not any way we want. Not to behave any way we want. But to believe his word. To believe that it's true. To believe that it's binding on our lives. And because we believe that, we submit to the word of God. As Jesus says in John 14, 15. Jesus gave us the word. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And notice what he says in verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and I will be in you. And so Jesus provides the help that we need so that we can obey. He gives us the truth revealed in Scripture so that we will know exactly what God requires. And he provides the indwelling presence of his Spirit who teaches us the truth. See, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and that's what Psalm 50 does. It is a sharp, piercing sword to dead formalistic worship and worship that dishonors God. And we are living in a time, one last, I know we're going a little bit over today, but we are living in a time, as I've said, where not only is our worship by and large feeling oriented and lacking in biblical and sound theological grounding, but we we need to understand what worship is because God takes it so, so seriously. This warning for us in Psalm 50 is a sobering reminder that the God that we serve is holy and just and perfect and his demands are just and perfect and good and that all that he does, all the ways of the Lord are good. They're holy, they're just, they're perfect. Titus 1-2 says that God never lies. God will always act according to his word. He will always do according to what he has said in his word. You can take that to the bank. But you can also take it to the bank what Hebrews 13-5 and verse 8 says, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So if you're, if you're being convicted of just walking through the motions of your worship, of your Christian life, if you're living for yourself, I urge you today to repent. Because that dishonor, living for yourself dishonors God. Living by cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, that's not a way to live. We live by the costly grace of our King and of our Lord who has saved us at the cost of his own blood. He did not cease to stop to give the treasure of himself for us on our behalf, in our place and for our sin, and to be buried and to rise. It's a worship that honors God, that glorifies God. It's worship that is grounded in the word. Because that's the kind of worship that has the right foundation. It has the right focus. It has the right motivation. It has the right fuel to honor God by living rightly before his face, which we always do. There's not one place where we can go that is beyond his knowledge. And in every situation, this is why we cry out to God. Why, as a Christian, you need the grace of God. As, as Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, you need the grace of God to, 
At the, there's a grace of God at the beginning. There's a grace of God at the middle. There's the grace of God at the end. And there's a grace of God everywhere. Wondrous grace, he said. And he's right. And yet maybe today you're realizing that you are like what Jesus described in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. That you are a worker of lawlessness. You are a hypocrite. You are worshiping not God. You are worshiping yourself. And that you are not known by the Father. You are not known by Jesus the Son. You are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And what I would plead with you today is Acts 16.31 says to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And once you're saved, God by his grace will come into your life. The Holy Spirit at the moment of your conversion will come and indwell you. You will be what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, a new creation in Christ. You will be what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, you will be born again. God will take you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, as Colossians 1 tells us. And you will be his, the Lord's, and he will be yours. You will be his friend and a slave of the most high God, Yahweh. With all the privileges and all the benefits of a child of God, adopted by the grace of God. You who were once a traitor are now made his friend. You who were once a slave have been bought by, brought in from the slave market and been called a child of God, redeemed and reconciled at the cost of the blood of Christ shed for your sin in your place so that you might be imputed by the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, so that you might worship him before his face and always in his presence. And you might serve him with thankfulness and gladness and joy, not for your renown, but for his renown. And you might do as Romans 6.11 says, and consider yourself dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ. That's good news. That is good news. That is the best news in the world. Jesus came not on a on a, a mission to condemn sinners, but to save sinners so that they might become children of God, so that they might no longer be enslaved to sin, so they might be slaves to him and servants of the Most High God, proclaiming the glory of Christ. And as Jesus said and when he preached his first sermon. Unrolling that scroll from Isaiah 61, preaching in Luke 4, saying that he came to set the captives free. Jesus came to set the captives free. He came to take you, you who were once far off, you who were once enslaved to your sins and trespasses, and to make you alive to God through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior King Jesus. So put your trust and hope in all that you are in the righteousness of God, which as Luther and Calvin said, is the very hinge on which the Christian faith hinges. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a righteous, holy, just, perfect God, and that what your word says is enough, and it always will be, and Lord, this is such a, a piercing, heart-piercing word from your word that the only response to it is to thank you, Lord, for sending your son to die, as Newton said, for wretches like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was once blind, but now I see. What amazing grace says, even as Lloyd-Jones says, wondrous grace. And we stand amazed at your grace. Where we have just walked through the motions, where we have just even engaged in professing to believe you, professing to take you at your word, Lord, we repent of sins that we 
We know about his sins that we don't. And yet you all know them all. And we cast ourselves, as 1 John 1, 9 says, on the perfect spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our advocate, our high priest, a very present help in time of need. We just thank you, Lord, for your word that is sufficient, that it's clear, and that you teach us. Help us now, this word from Psalm 50, plant it deep in our hearts, plaster it on on the tablet of our hearts, that we might walk and worship and witness all for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.